0: Welcome to episode 12 of the Pharmacist Matters podcast. I'm your host, Justin Bates. It's been quite some time since our last episode. So much has happened uh, throughout uh, the world when it comes to COVID-19. There's been the good, there's been the bad, and there's been the ugly. But I tend to look at some of the silver linings of where we have progressed and what we can do coming out of the pandemic with lessons learned to address some of the gaps in our healthcare system and vulnerabilities that have been exposed during this last uh, 18 months. But there is good news. There has been opportunities to look at how we deliver public health, primary care, and all parts of our healthcare system in a more effective way that makes sure that we're building capacity, addressing some of the uh, areas where access and barriers uh, and equity are are definitely barriers and challenges. Um, And I think that, Looking at the high vaccination rates is one of the good things coming out of this. There still is a long way to go and the last mile of getting people fully vaccinated. But with vaccination rates over 80% and policies moving in a direction to nudge people with vaccine mandates and vaccine certificates, we are headed in the right direction. But as I said, there's lots of work uh, to improve where we are and where we're going. And I think we it behooves us to have this conversation and be able to have an honest uh, dialogue about where we wanna go and what the solutions look like. Today, I'm very excited to have Dr. Noah Ivers join us. Dr. Ivers has been instrumental in bringing people together, collaborating uh, and really focusing in on what we need to do to uh, improve healthcare for Ontarians and and, uh, more broadly the overall uh, healthcare system in Canada. Dr. Ivers is an Associate Professor in the Department of Family and Community Medicine, University of Toronto, and a Tier 2 Canada Research Chair in Implementation of Evidence-Based Practice. Dr. Ivers works with stakeholders across the province and around the world to find ways to measure and report quality of care in ways that enable providers to respond more effectively to care gaps. During the pandemic, he helped launch 19 to 0, which brings a range of stakeholders across Canada to help in the pandemic response. Welcome, Doctor Ivers.
1: Thanks very much for having me. It's uh, it's always very uh, embarrassing when you get these these intros. Um, you know, I think that the thing for me is is um, the thing that really drives me is is one day, uh, you and I both, you know, God willing, our grandchildren will ask us, you know, Grandpa, what did you do during the Great Pandemic uh, to help out? And um, the idea of that's really motivated me to, you know, do do what I can. I can't do everything. I can't do all that much, but I try to do what I can.
0: Absolutely, and I, I think the opportunity out of this is to continue to work together to bring solutions for creating better policies. And and certainly, we know that there's many different areas where we need to focus on the sustainability of the healthcare system. We saw you know, tremendous challenges and tragedy within the long term care uh, residents and homes uh, areas where neglect and, uh, you know, years of uh, policy changes have had a, a negative impact. And, and I think there's lessons learned there as well. But I'd be really interested to get your take on, you know, how do you think we have fared throughout the, the pandemic from the responses of healthcare providers to where we are now with the vaccination strategy? Be great to unpack that a little bit and get your perspective oh
1: what a big question huh I mean I think there's going to be books written on this um, let's try to take it bit by bit. I think first of all um, how one thinks that we've fared totally depends on a few things and in the first of all it's going to depend on what we're measuring and who we're comparing against um, so if we compare ourselves against our um, You know, some of the states in the United States, we've done incredibly well. Uh, We have death rates that are, you know, a fraction. Uh, So so we've kept people alive here in our province and, uh, you know, better than than other places, other jurisdictions, and yet if we compare ourselves to certain countries in Western Europe, uh, in Scandinavia, other than Sweden, um, we've done poorly. And so I think it really, you know, it really depends on where we set our standards um, when it count, comes to death. I think the next thing to do is think about, well, how have we done in terms of keeping people afloat and um, keeping them well in all the spheres of, of health that we want to think about, not just keeping people alive, but helping them live well. Um, and I think then the answer is quite the same in general. The jurisdictions that allowed the most death also had the biggest hit to their economy, so they had a double whammy, and um, and that you know that happened time and again, and it was you know terribly unfortunate uh, for those areas, and so we took some path somewhere in between um, areas that sort of uh, decided they need to live with it a little bit too early, like uh, for instance, most recently in Alberta. Um, and areas that you know maybe um, maybe locked down without without a view for an exit, um, such as for instance what Australia is going through right now. Um, it's worth noting what Australians are, are going through right now. I have colleagues in Melbourne. I do a fair bit of work with, and they've they've had basically a year of lockdown. Um, and when, you know we're talking not the sort of fake lockdowns that we had here, but legitimate lockdowns. Uh, that really put a lot of restrictions on them um, and um, you know in the meantime they didn't take advantage of those lockdowns to get their vaccination rates up where they needed to be so now they're stuck they're stuck betwixt and between um, it does feel like the exit you know we are always buying time for science to get us an exit and uh the exit has something to do with vaccinations and on that, you know, we can feel really, really grateful that we've, we've done pretty darn well. We're not Portugal, where uh, vaccination rates are sky high. They basically have nobody left to vaccinate in Portugal. Um, and we should talk about that. Why have they been able to do that? Um, but we're, you know, we're far from, you know, Florida um, or Australia, for that matter, where there's, there's quite a lot of room uh, for increasing the vaccination rates. We're,
0: we're doing pretty well. You mentioned Portugal. Do they have a mandate or did they influence uh, or incentivize people in in using different methods?
1: My understanding, and this is what I was hoping, you know, I think back in January I was asked this, um, I want to say on CBC, you know, are we going to need a mandate? How do you think about mandates? And my answer to that way back then was that, you know, I'm really hopeful we're not going to need this, uh, that, the data are going to be so compelling um, that the vast majority of Canadians are going to get the vaccine and that's going to be that's going to be adequate to get us going and it was it was the case here you know the vast majority of Canadians found the data to be compelling found the recommendations from public health authorities to be compelling um, but it it wasn't enough and so here we did need as you said we did need some extra incentives certificates, mandates, and and whatnot um, to ensure safety. Um, In Portugal, my understanding is that they have such high levels of trust uh, between the populace and the people responsible for managing the pandemic um, that when the recommendation was made to get the vaccine, uh, it was, first of all, it was done in a way that people found it compelling and then in in response the the population sort of um sort of went for it 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 was it was made accessible um people were offered a reason to have confidence in it um and so they got i don't know 99 percent or something astonishing like that
0: do you think mandates work in the sense of uh i mean when i look at it i mean logically one should could suggest they work uh, because it somewhat forces people if they want to participate uh, in activities to get vaccinated. But it also creates this uh, erosion of trust in some uh, cohorts. And we're seeing that with the anti-vaxxer movement and just how it's escalated um, around this idea uh, and perception of freedom and choice. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and yeah, it's, how do you it's
1: complicated, it? isn't it? It is. Um, yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah, I think they work. I think that is very clear. They increase, uh, they give people who were a little bit hesitant, um, the extra motivation they needed, uh, but the folks who were more strongly uh, opposed, um, or the folks whose personalities are to sort of be contrarian, um, it gives them a reason to dig in their heels, doesn't it? And you know, it, it certainly doesn't help the sort of sense of solidarity in our in our population as a whole. It doesn't bring us all together. Um, it does create this sort of uh, anti-authoritarian subgroup that, um, and, and it feeds into their conspiracy theories uh, about you know us versus them and, and and things like that. So there is there is some risk there for sure.
0: I have found this a fascinating topic to see how the beginning of the pandemic people were showing a lot of appreciation and love for healthcare providers, banging pots and and I think to a large extent the majority is still there. They may express it differently at this point uh, <laughs> in the pandemic, but when you look at some of the escalation of the rhetoric, um, the lack of civility uh, at some of these protests. Um, and and where they've you know gone to hospitals and trying to intimidate and um, bully patients even uh, trying to access care um you know it's disheartening and and i know that the pandemic has had a tremendously uh, difficult and strong um toll on healthcare providers you know the mental uh, health component of this um, has just uh, been one of the areas that i think we're going to continue to explore how do we support and better provide tools to healthcare providers to manage the the stress and and the burnout. What are your thoughts on that? And how do you feel as a healthcare provider when you see some of these protests and uh, the escalation of some of the anti-vaxxers?
1: So one of the things that I want to say in answering this is that it was just Canadian Thanksgiving as we record this, uh, just a couple of days ago, and I actually got a few notes uh, from patients, you know, saying one of the things they were thankful for was having having you know, me as their family doc. And I can't tell you how heartwarming that is. Um, uh, and I wanna build on that by saying, you know, the other thing that happened on on Thanksgiving is exchange some notes with um, healthcare professional friends that I've made during the pandemic response, you know, people that I didn't actually interact with much before, but who, you know, we've actually leaned on each other um, learn to respect each other, um, learn to work together, um, and it's just been an amazing source of strength, actually. Um, these sort of positive uh, interactions with both patients and colleagues. So I wanna start there, and because um, because it, it's really important that if we're gonna talk about burnout, we should also talk about ways to find joy in what we do. And we're, we are lucky to get to do what we do um, to get to, you know, especially during the pandemic, to have work to do every day, to have work that matters, um, so, you know, I feel very fortunate in that regard. Um, but absolutely seeing the protests have been, um, it's been so, so frustrating. It, you know, it makes me wonder, you know, about, um, you know, where the funding is coming from for organizing these groups. Um, They do seem very, very well organized and um, it's quite distressing, isn't it? Uh, I I can tell you, you know, I have some frail, vulnerable patients and I, I must say like, you know, at the end of a long, hard day, if I were to see some of them get harassed by some of these people as they go to access the care they need, uh, there is a good chance my tempers would, would, would flare, you know, like there is a good chance I would have none of it. And, um, that doesn't get us anywhere, of course. So I'm glad that hasn't happened to me yet, but you know, there's been times when I'm just on the edge. Cause it, you know, it's a long, hard day and you're trying your best. You're really, we're here to help. We really are trying to do our best. Uh, and, uh, it really feels like this is an extra, um, Barrier to helping people that we just we just don't need. Um,
0: I, I can't even imagine it to be honest. Uh, when I was thinking, uh, certainly when I was watching this on TV and the reports of it uh, on hospital grounds uh, in a coordinated fashion, as you've um, noted and well organized, uh, you know, seeing. Uh, chemotherapy patients go in trying to access uh, the services and and just being uh, ridiculed and intimidated and you know I even think of it on my own personal level having been through that with my wife who a few years ago had breast cancer and and the vulnerable state she was in uh, I can't imagine what it would have been like to add that stress um, and and concern for simply accessing uh, hospital services I never thought we'd see the day that uh, you know we'd have that level of um, Civil disobedience, and and I think also you know I, my son's in a hockey program, and uh, it's requiring uh, it's minor hockey, um, and uh, it's requiring vaccinations. And yes, uh, yes, you know. my
1: son is in GTHL as well, so right, um, right. maybe it's the same organization.
0: Yeah, and and so we're up in uh, Simcoe County, so it's a very Minor Hockey Association. Okay, we went in for the evaluation skate for house league uh, a couple weekends ago, and uh, there were parents there picketing, and. Um, they want to start an alternative or uh, parallel league, the road hockey, and they're pulling their kids out because they're unvaccinated, uh, the parents, and uh, they don't they don't believe in it. So they're going to, in a sense, they're going to hurt their kids' ability to participate because of their beliefs and. You know, that that struck me um, to see it at the doors of the recreational center. And, you know, I, again, I, would, I never would have imagined it'd be in the state. I see it in families. Um, I see it with colleagues. It is a divisive issue in a lot of cases. And it's not always, you know, I don't want to paint it that everybody who isn't vaccinated is anti-vax because I, I think that would be, um, you know, that would be not the right way to approach this. There's a lot of people that are vaccine hesitant, uh, have a lot of legitimate questions about, yeah. The science and and I and that's where I'm wondering, you know, when we look at the science communication, we look at uh, organizations like NASA, which in a large extent have been proven to be correct in a lot of their uh, decision making. Um, when you look at the evidence, um, but the science communications have been somewhat challenging, and I think the same with the World Health Organization. And it's so important, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. So, what do you yeah. think of that? Like, how do we address that? And do you think that has contributed to some of the hesitancy we've seen out there? On
1: the one hand, we don't want the scientific experts to be thinking exclusively about communications and implementation when they're making the best possible scientific recommendations. But on the other hand, we don't want them to forget it either. Um, if they make recommendations that are uh, contrary to what they made before, for instance, and that has happened, you know, um, I was very unsure of mass at the beginning, and now I couldn't be more convinced. Um, it's really important that we take pains to explain why our views have shifted and why that actually is not only acceptable, but desirable. We should all be looking for more information in all spheres of our life and trying to make the best decisions we can at any given point in time. Um, And I think that you're right when, when the evidence started coming, for instance, with the AstraZeneca vaccine and the blood clotting issue, um, um, you know, I think, first of all, it's worth saying that NASSI has been extraordinarily correct. Uh, you're right. They've been proven correct time and again with their decisions. But you're also right that, you know, the, the way that they went about bringing Canadians along and or teaching healthcare professionals how to bring their patients along uh, was really lacking, and I think they they have retrospectively sort of acknowledged that as well. They I think they've changed their protocols around how and when and who does media releases and things like this. Um, but in it, you know I think we could have well predicted. We knew a year ago that vaccines were going to become divisive. There have been you know, vaccine hesitancy was raised by the WHO as a, as a major issue, you know, decades ago uh, as it relates to, you know, world sort of health. And um, I think with that in mind, it would have been lovely to see more investment uh, in professional communications approaches around the science and around the scientific recommendations.
0: And it's not easy. I mean, these are, science is evolving in real time using real world evidence. And I don't think the average person is used to that, right? Because, you know, when we look at things like storage and handling and expiration dates, um, and and we don't normally have those conversations about existing vaccines, right? It's, It's been around for a long time. So when people a lot of people around my dinner table conversations and I've got a mix of people have some family physicians who are uh, family members and, and various people who aren't even in, in healthcare and it was a constant conversation about you know who do we trust and it seems convenient that you know all of a sudden an expiration date would change uh, 30 days uh, out and I try to explain to them that you know this is a good thing that we're reviewing the, the evidence and the data being transparent about it and and we're updating the guidelines. But I think it made a lot of people um, question and, and maybe have an erosion of trust because they're not used to that. Well,
1: I, I think for on the one hand, they've never paid attention to it before, because you're right, this is a normal process. Um, but on the other hand, we've never, um, it's never been as crucial and never been as much in the news. Um, so they don't know that some of this is normal. And it's certainly not normal that it happens all this much and all this quickly. Um, and so, but I think just going back to what I was saying before, I think we, we could have foreseen this and it would have been, it would have been great if the, um, the predictable communication challenges and implementation challenges that come along with these scientific decisions were explicitly accounted for upfront um, not to slow things down, but to, you know, help us all be on the same page. Um, and that, you know, I think one of the things that I've been involved with is trying to put together these educational modules as the data came out about the vaccines, um, for family physicians and others, uh, in primary care who want to access them, they're available on the department of family and community medicine, university of Toronto website, they're free. Um, I don't, I don't get paid for it. I have no conflicts, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, But sorry for that little tangent. Um, But keeping up with the information that we stick on this site has been really hard. Uh, One of the goals of trying to keep up with it is it's my strong opinion that primary care in in my mind, that includes community pharmacists, Um, you know, these are often the people who have the most trusted relationship with with, with Canadians uh, on the ground. And so we really want to give them um, both a sense of the evidence and also a sense of the talking points around how and when the evidence has changed and why and so on. So because a lot of these questions truly are predictable um, and they're the same, honestly, they're the same questions we've been hearing since December. Um, and the answers are readily available. The problem is the wrong answers are also even more readily available um, on YouTube and Facebook and so on. It's, it's it's really, for somebody like me that kind of does this as an extra, as, as a way to feel like they're making a bit of a difference, it's hard to keep up. It really is. Uh, it, to keep providing the resources, to keep, you know, um, it, it's quite exhausting, frankly.
0: Yeah, hey, I wanted to unpack that because one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is whether you think Social media has been a good thing uh, in this perspective with uh, getting information out, having key influencers like yourself and and many of your colleagues who have been out there disseminating information about vaccines, trying to dispel myths uh, and and frankly, uh, misinformation that's out there. But it's also a negative echo chamber uh, and it is exhausting and it does expose uh, you to um a lot of the negativity um and and you know that part of that burden and part of the mental health stress i know is the uh constant barrage of stuff going on and just the uh, just just the fact that you have to constantly be on top of that and and it's very time consuming but at the same time it gets the information out, right? So it's a bit of a blessing and a curse, but I wanted to get your thought on social media and the impact it's had on physicians in particular, but healthcare providers across the system. Yeah,
1: a double-edged sword, isn't it? Um, I'm thinking back to what we know you know, historically, obviously I wasn't around uh, during the prior uh, great pandemic, the, the influenza pandemic, or and obviously not around during ones previous to that. Um, um, and obviously we didn't have social media then. And I, I'm trying to, in my mind at least, contrast how things might have gone if we had social media during the influenza pandemic 100 years ago. And I must say, I I, I struggle to believe that it would have helped. And I I struggle to believe that on the whole, it's been helpful um, today. Uh, At the same time, you're also right, like if we just it's there. And if we, if we just leave it be, if we don't have some attempt to balance the conversation there, it will be full with, um, it will be full with misinformation funded and sourced by those with, I think, nefarious malignant intentions. Um, I think I, I I can't make sense of it any other way. Um, And, and so, you know, you feel like you're stuck. You, you, this is a way to make a difference. Um, and so once you get in there and try to offer some opinions, you also, you don't want to be feeding just the echo chamber. And, um, if I think we have a lot of, uh, personalities on social media that Um, don't show any moderation. I'm trying to choose my words carefully there. You can, (laughs) so, and I think what happens then is that you prove yourself to not be somebody who's willing to listen or hear out a point. Um, and then that completely erodes the possibility of building trust in people who are having legitimate questions or are sort of on the fence or could be converted. To uh, making a decision to protect themselves and their family. Um, instead, you just, you know, create a larger fence, and you um, you make it harder for them to climb over. Um, so, uh, one thing I would add on top of that is that that's been something I guess um, healthcare professionals who wade into these waters have to kind of learn on their own. I mean, there's no there's certainly not training about this in pharmacy school or medical school that I know of. So, um, you know, you have to think carefully, what are your goals and, um, with any given tweet, are you achieving that goal? And just, as I said before, sometimes, you know, tempers can flare and, and, you know, you can't help yourself being a bit snarky online. Um, but it doesn't necessarily help.
0: It's it's a dilemma of knowing when to respond or post something, and when not to. Because as you said, it's a two sided coin. It does give a platform for those for spreading misinformation, and and there's almost a, a feeling of responsibility to counter that. And then you open yourself up for you know even threats that uh, many have received. And and you know I've, one of the features I found very helpful throughout the pandemic is the mute conversation uh, feature within Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, because there's a certain point where it, it just it, it becomes a rabbit hole and uh, it can really change your whole outlook um, and the negativity and the constant barrage of it. So I think you know what we yeah, see, I out think it's there- important
1: to remind people actually that um, it, it can get loud, but 87, 88 percent of Canadians who are eligible have now gotten their first shot. So if you're on social media and it feels like a balanced playground. Um, you, you're, you're actually also, or, or it feels like, a you know, an area where, um, you know, the people you're hanging out with are all not vaccinated, then definitely you're getting a skewed view. Um, it is truly the minority, uh, that are, that are anti-vax. And I think it's, it is important for us to like, remember what the re like. In real world, what what do things look like versus what's on social media? And so this is one battleground, so to speak, where we can try to influence people. But there is there is also just a lot of digging in of heels and frustration, and 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 maybe not great productivity there.
0: That's it would be point.
1: useful to think about. It would be useful to think about which kinds of conversations are useful and which aren't. And that also applies when we're seeing patients one on one. I have friends who are pharmacists. And, uh, they interact with patients who are, you know, vehemently and vigorously, um, anti-vax. And, um, you know, I think my advice to them is to recognize that really, really quickly and not get in, not get into it. It's not, it's going to be exhausting and not helpful. But if, you know, if, if you get the sense that actually the majority of your patients are, then either you're living in a very strange area of Canada. Or, um, or maybe your sort of antennae about where they where they stand is off.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and you remind me of a conversation I had with someone last week, um, uh, attending one of my children's uh, athletic activities, and we were standing mm-hmm. outside. And I said to him, and he knows what I do, and and uh, so forth. So he said, "How's it going?" And I said, "Well, it, it's still a pretty divisive." Uh, Issue and it has torn apart friendships. I mean, I've talked to people who essentially stopped uh, being friends with people that they were friends for over 30 years because yes. they just couldn't, they couldn't anymore subject themselves to that negativity and the anti um, vaccine uh, conversations, and they, they've literally cut them off. Uh, so, you've, you hear about these. Uh, challenges but at the same time you know he responded and said to me there's nothing divisive about this at all and it kind of reflects what you just said that we've got 80 percent of the people <laughs> a vast majority of people that believe in this and and you know see the science and you know are are not negative or out there protesting but we we tend to the loud minority tends to get the airplay if you will and you know one of the things that that I think is great about this and social media is that we've never before had access like this to information, right? Credible information where people are engaging um, the medical community and public health experts. Um, And again, that's also a two sided coin. Uh, You know, what's that? How do you normalize that over a period of time and post pandemic? And what does that look like? But when I look now, one of the challenges that our members are expressing to us is that last mile of people because of the vaccine mandate and vaccine certificate process they're getting a lot of people come in that are begrudgingly getting
1: yeah.
0: uh, a vaccine and they're resentful and and they're not happy about it <laughs> so there's a whole i i think pharmacists and i i, I suspect uh, other healthcare providers as well have really had to uh, educate and and look for resources and how to deal with these difficult situations and have Conversations where you're de-escalating. Obviously, there's the education and conversation components, and and that's you know I think germane to the day-to-day activities. But uh, nothing like this in the past uh, in terms of that level of um, you know rhetoric that sometimes uh, we're presented with.
1: I mean, I think in school we were told frequently that there will likely be another pandemic, and these are the things you need to know, and so on and so forth. Um, but I must say, I never really believed it. I kind of thought like the days of this kind of world event were behind us, and and how wrong I was. You know, I thought we were in an epoch of uh, you know non communicable diseases, um, chronic diseases like diabetes being our 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 pandemic. Um, And and I must say, like, you know, now that we've lived through it, it seems entirely plausible that we'll see another one. Um, And I don't know how much better off we'll be in terms of preparedness. Um, I think one of the things that could make us more prepared, this is sort of a tangential answer to your question or comment, is... Uh, One of the things that could better make us prepared is if we continue to build the relationships and the collaboration across areas of healthcare. So that, um, you know, when your members, you know, community pharmacists on the ground are seeing somebody who's really distressed, they already have a relationship with that person's family doc. Um, they, they know Dr. Smith or Dr. Jones or what have you, and they can say, you know. Dr. Jones is really good at talking about this. If you want, we can buzz them and uh, we'll we'll make sure you get an appointment. Um, And actually vice versa, you know, um, when I see a patient, it would be amazing if I already knew and had great relationships with the pharmacists in my neighborhood. And some of them I do, and some of them I don't. And it would be helpful if I could say, you know, make sure when you go to such and such store, you know, you speak with Mike. Uh, cause I know that he's going to be amazing at starting your insulin. I I've been to, I've, i talked with him about that. Um, I just think like, it's such a simple, obvious thing. And in small towns, they've got this rocket, right? Like everybody knows each other, they know what each other's strengths and limitations are and the anonymity of our, uh, larger cities, we don't have that and um, it's something that would really help us, not just with preparing for the next pandemic, but actually for our whole healthcare system.
0: That's a great launching point uh, into the sort of last topic that I wanted to touch on with you, and and tap into your expertise around and observations throughout the the pandemic, because you have a unique vantage point um, uh, on the front lines and and managing patients and talking to all your colleagues across the system uh you know that's such an invaluable uh, insights that you're going to be able to derive from all of that but what do you think are the the gaps like if, if we are trying to solve some of the systemic issues that we knew existed before pandemic and got greatly exposed during the pandemic you know what are the solutions moving forward what do you think will make whether it's another pandemic or simply addressing some of the healthcare gaps uh post pandemic what does it look like in an ideal world to you
1: Another big question, eh?
0: Um,
1: Okay. I think item one has got to be uh, better and more integrated uh, IMIT, IS, whatever you want to call it. So how our information flows um, across sectors, across professionals, uh, and over time. Um, Of course, when one of my colleague community pharmacists sees a patient and does maybe a med check, uh, they send me a fax and then it gets scanned into my chart and it's like, you know, sort of legible and um, my, how the tables have turned, right? Uh, (laughs) Now it's me that can't read your writing. Um, And, um, you know, it's scanned into my EMR as a PDF. (laughs) <laughs> what good is that? It's an image, um, and vice versa. You know, I'm sending I'm sending my pharmacy colleagues some something that says, you know, I don't know, the dose has changed or whatever, or don't refill until date X, and it's just, you know, it all seems very 1980s, doesn't it? Uh, so it would be wonderful if we could imagine living on a truly integrated system. Um, so that, that would be, that would be item one from an infrastructure investment, e-health, whatever you want to call it, point of view. Um, I know that that's been tried before many billions of dollars have been, you know, wasted on that. Uh, but it does seem imminently solvable. Like when I go to a bank, I can go to any bank and take out money from my bank. Regardless of what company runs that Instacart, like everything talks to each other, and I I struggle to believe that that's not a solvable problem in healthcare for everything to talk to each other. Um, so that would be that would be item one uh, in my mind that we have more of an integrated uh, information system. Uh, I think item two is that we um, leverage that to break down silos and create sort of create sort of um, communities around patient needs, uh, pathways, if you will. Um, so it's not, you know, that I hand over a patient to the hospital and later on the, the hospital hands it over to me um, and never the, the two shall speak. It's like, um, I think it would be great if we could think about how we all work Again, in a more integrated fashion, for a relatively predictable patient pathway. Many pathways are actually pretty predictable. Um, the whole of transitions in
0: care. right? Yeah, yeah.
1: Of course, there's complexities, and you know, I'd, I'd love to, I'd love to see that when a patient is leaving hospital, they're pre-booked for that post-hospitalization med check with the pharmacist. Like, what? Why can't we pre-book that? And why can't they be pre-pooked in my schedule as their family doc to see me, you know, um, whatever, on day X and their med check on day Y, whether that's pre or post. I don't know what the best practice is, frankly. We could do some research on that. And then the last point is exactly that, is that we should be consistently measuring and reporting how well we're doing on um, issues that matter to patients. Um, And I don't mean this from a you can see me doing air quotes now, if this was on video, accountability perspective. I mean this from a quality improvement perspective. So we have to get away from um, the idea that measuring is about, you know, um, assessing some sort of summative value, like you are now a good doctor or you are now a bad pharmacist or what have you, but rather we're constantly trying to be as good as we can. And we all have our flaws. And we're constantly looking for data to tell us where those flaws are and how we can improve. So if we can shift our culture that way, because we're better using data, I think that would be just amazing and really exciting.
0: And how does virtual care in your mind fit into this? Do you think it is sustainable? Is it going to be part and parcel of what uh, we'll see in the healthcare system post-pandemic? I
1: I sure hope so. I mean, to me, virtual care is care. Um, And we have to, the job is exactly what you pointed out, is figuring out what's the, how to right-size the care for the problem. Um, Why can't med checks be, uh, some of them be um, virtual? Like, can we turn on a camera and um, have the patient show you their pills and their pill bottles and so on? Like, do we really need my 89-year-old to you know, get out her walker and make her way into the pharmacy for that. Um, you know, I think I think, virtual care is a great way to be patient-centered. It's also, as you said, a great way to miss things. And so we really, it will require, um, it will require us to be really, really careful around setting expectations about what should and shouldn't be virtual. Um, I, I did hear a story that's shocking to me um the other day my colleague had his Saturday clinic open uh, available to patients uh, who had you know urgent or semi-urgent needs um and instead the patient decided to do one of these online sort of services so they didn't have to leave their home which is yeah their prerogative um and uh, ended up you know for, basically common cold symptoms being prescribed an antiviral, uh, which is not okay, Um, especially without an exam. But I I mean, even with an exam, I can't imagine a reason for this prescription in that context. Uh, And I I do wonder if A, the patient had seen their own doc or B, if they'd actually had an in-person assessment uh, does the quality of care go up? So we're going to have to, we're going to have to monitor for that. But to say that we should go back to a time where virtual care is removed, I think that would be. I think patients would be up in arms, and I think they'd be right, right to be.
0: Well, it's about access, right? And and options. Yeah. And I think using clinical professional judgment on what constitutes the need or necessity to have an in-person versus virtual consult, some guidelines around that uh, and tools will, I think, be helpful. But, you know, when we look at some of the challenges that are going to come out of this from a healthcare crisis standpoint, you know, everybody's hearing and reading about um, those that didn't get screened, um, not diagnosed for early detection of cancers, you know, is that our next crisis is it you know two years out three years out where you know i
1: think it's already here here, justin um for sure cancers have been you know put off and people have put off coming in for certain things and i think it's already here where I, i even in my own little practice i'm seeing things later than i used to um so there's there's all of there's all of that and then i think the other thing you know that that's Already here is a whole bunch of patients, unfortunately with long COVID, that we have to figure out how to help. And then thirdly, we have, um, I I think we've always had a lot of uh, mental health uh, challenges in our system. Um, I think we will continue to need to sort that through uh, over the coming years. And I don't think any of any of that should be temporary, just like virtual care. Like we, we have to, you know, we started behind the eight ball on access and the pandemic came and we had to make a big change. Um, we started behind the eight ball with a lack of a mental health care system. And actually during the pandemic, uh, some things were invested in. It is possible, more possible than before for me to get OHIP covered therapy for my patients, uh, which is fantastic. I think we, I hope that we can continue to invest in that sort of thing so that, you know, um, we think about mental health just as we do about physical health. It's health, it's all health, just like care is all care.
0: It's interesting, Dr. Ivers that you've mentioned long COVID and I'm I'm often getting questions about the vaccine and, you know, you can still get COVID uh, if you're fully vaccinated, but it, reduces the severity of the symptoms and uh, risk of hospitalizations. But if you're vaccinated, let's say, fully vaccinated, you get uh, COVID. Does it help prevent long COVID? Do we know? Um, uh, Because that obviously is something that we're still still emerging about the uh, full impacts of long COVID.
1: So obviously, if you don't get COVID, you're not going to get long COVID. So to that extent, vaccines, surely help reduce overall prevalence of long COVID. Now, if you are unfortunate ag- enough to get COVID still, even though you're fully vaccinated, you're absolutely correct that your um, your uh, sort of response, your disease is less li- much less likely to be severe, uh, you know, 50 times or 30 times or some um, amazing amount less likely to be severe there is a correlation between severity of infection and long COVID. So it is likely that that means the vaccine is protecting in that way from long COVID as well. And there are also reports and uh, the emerging data suggests that possibly people who had long COVID who got vaccinated, their symptoms may be improved. Um, I must say, I'm not totally sold on that. Certainly seems worth a shot, uh, but I'm not totally sold on that data yet. Um, So it's a longer answer than I think you were hoping for. But on the whole, I would say there is reason to believe that the vaccines reduce likelihood of long COVID. Um, There is no reason to believe that vaccines could worsen that. So that's really good news.
0: It is good news. And and I think that is reason alone to uh, consider getting the vaccine if if you're still hesitant uh, and on the fence about uh, whether to get vaccinated. And and the encouraging signs we've seen over the last several weeks uh, through community pharmacies in the province is that more and more people are coming in for a first dose. So hopefully we get that number well above the 90% threshold for uh, herd immunity and and, uh, getting people fully vaccinated. I want to thank you, Dr. Ivers, for taking time uh, out of your day to have a conversation about the pandemic and and your observations. You've been an inspiration in bringing people together. Uh, We've had an opportunity to have several conversations um, throughout the pandemic, and I appreciate uh, both your, your insights and observations, but also your candor and willingness to work together. And I think that will serve us well uh, as we move forward. Um, And undoubtedly, we deal with another crisis. Um, We're we're always going to learn from this, but um, we'll have to adapt and and focus on solutions moving forward. So thank you again for your um, comments and insights for today's uh, podcast. I want to thank all of our listeners for joining us today and remind uh, folks that you can subscribe on your favorite uh, podcast platform to the Pharmacist Matters podcast. Until next time, be safe and stay healthy.